27. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead... So faith without deeds is dead. Good morning. What a glorious morning it is. Amen. I tell you what, if we had to lose an hour of sleep last night, at least we've got a warm spring day to enjoy when we get up, and we're glad that you are here. We've got a good attendance, uh, especially in light of the fact that we have uh, well over 20 of our young people and some adults chaperoning them up on the eastern shore in a retreat, and they'll be back after this assembly this morning. And uh, we're really glad that they've had such good weather to be off together, uh, energizing their spirit and fellowshipping with each other and just having a good time in the Lord. We just really appreciate Aaron and Kara Shaner and all that they do in ministry in this congregation. And, and I know you appreciate th that too. When they get back, you let them know just how much we love them and, and just what a great work they are doing among us. An overtired, overstressed, a man who was working more but enjoying it less, executive, was getting frustrated after a long week of work and two hours of sitting in a parking lot trying to get home from work, finally walked in the door and in frustration said to his wife, said, Honey, I've had it. I think that what I want to do is I want to quit my job. I want to liquidate my assets, just sell off all that we've got, including the house, buy a shack up in the mountains and just become a hermits. Would you love me if I did that? And she said, Well, of course I would love you if you did that. She paused a moment and she said, I would miss you, but I would love you. 
And I think that it helps illustrate a very important principle as we're fleshing out what it means to be the recipients of God's abundant grace in Jesus Christ. We're looking at this passage in our thematic approach for the month of March in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9 where Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. What a wonderful blessing it is to know that we are saved because God loves us through the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Amen? And yet, while God's love is unconditional, the Scripture is also very clear that God's offer of salvation through Jesus is very conditional. That's what we want to turn the corner looking at uh, today and the rest of the month. Now, knowing that Jesus was going to die to take away our sins once for all, and that was God's gift to us, that there was nothing that we could do to earn it, and we certainly didn't deserve it. Knowing that was the case, I want you to listen to some things Jesus had to say. Once in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who what? Who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He put it another way in Luke chapter 6 and and verse 46. He said, And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? The fact is, the Bible has a great deal to say, both in the Old Testament and coming into the New, about the premium that God places on a heart of faith that is moved to submit their will to His and obey His sovereign will for our lives. In fact, God is so serious about that that even though He loves us and would never want any of us to perish, He has placed the condition of faith as expressed in the work of Jesus at the cross as the means by which we say, yes, we want His gift. Listen to some of the things Jesus said. In John chapter 8 and verse 24, when Jesus was having a conversation with some folks, some religious leaders that were having real difficulty accepting some of the claims that he was making about himself, he said, unless you believe who I am, who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Now I want you to notice, Jesus knew that he was dying for the sins of the world. He knew that that was as a result of the gift of God to us in order to reconcile us to himself. And yet Jesus makes it very clear that unless people accept his truthful teaching about his identity, even though he dies for us, salvation will not result. It will not be appropriated for us personally. His offer of salvation is very conditional. In Luke chapter 13, the first five verses, we have Luke giving us a narrative about a conversation Jesus was having with people and He was uh, an observer of current events and uh, uh, a part of the mainstream of life. And and two things had occurred that had caused their conversation to, to stir. One was Governor Pilate, in his godless idolatry, had killed some people and taken their blood and mingled it with the sacrifices he was offering to his false gods. And the people were discussing that. And the belief that existed then, which still hasn't died, is that if uh, God loves you and you do right, He rewards you with good things, but if you do bad, He rewards you with bad things. And their conclusion was, boy, they must have been bad people doing bad things to have met a fate like that. And Jesus says, 
Do you think that they were any worse sinners than you were because that's how they died? He said, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. And then there was another incident he referenced in Luke 13. Uh, There was a construction accident and, and a building collapsed and 18 people died. Jesus said, do you think that they were worse sinners than you because they died that way? He said, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Jesus knew he was going to die for our sins, and yet Jesus makes it very clear that God's offer of salvation is conditioned upon our obedient response to his commands. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before men, him will I also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. He follows it up with a negative, but whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now Jesus was dying to save us from our sins. And yet he says, my offer of salvation is conditioned upon your faith response to my command to go public with your belief about who I am and your commitment to follow me. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 that those disciples, and by perpetuation so are we, to go into the world and preach the good news to every creature. He said, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved, but whoever does not believe shall be condemned. Now Jesus knew that our relationship to God was by grace through faith, and yet he says very clearly that unless we are baptized we will be condemned. Once again, the emphasis is upon the response that we are to make in obedience. You see, the Bible has a lot to say about obedience and the premium that God places upon our submissive, compliant will to His. The truth is, in Scripture, belief means, first of all, to take God at His word. That's what Abraham had to do. Abraham had to choose to take God at his word. From beginning to end, the relationship that Abraham had with God was a a life expressed in obedient faith. Now, folks, we we need to hear the truth on this matter. While faith or belief or trust is not an act of merit that earns us right standing with God, that's grace. To believe God, to take Him at His word, takes a lot of effort on our part, doesn't it? Faith is committing our past and our present and our future to God's character. You know, a lot of it is like uh, Lucy of Peanuts fame with Charlie Brown. And you remember the, the, the recurring scene with Lucy and Charlie where she would have the football and call Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown, and invite him over to kick it. Well, he knew you know, probably what was going to occur, but every time he had to make a decision of the will to take a risk on whether she would do right. Now, we know what the outcome was. Every time she was consistent, wasn't she? She pulled the ball away. Well, see, that's the act of faith in a positive way that we need to exercise toward the Lord. And it's a lot of effort on our part. Can God be trusted to not pull the ball away? Can God be trusted to do what he said he would do when we do what he said for us to do? That's the essence of faith. 
In Hebrews 11 and verse 6, the author who is about to go on to talk about many examples of obedient faith really gives us the functioning uh, uh, practical place of faith in our lives. He said, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. In Scripture, to be saved by grace through faith means to take God at his word. And then second, it means to turn that trust into action. In the Bible, a God-pleasing faith always leads to a willing act of response in God's direction. Here's where what Leonard read a while ago in James really helps us a great deal. Now, on the surface, it would appear, while you're turning over to James 2, it would appear that James and Paul contradict one another on this matter of salvation by grace through faith. When Paul writes to the church at Rome, he's making the case that a man does not have right standing because of his good ability to keep any kind of law, Moses' law or any other moral code. That we are so sinful that we cannot match the holiness of God by our own ability. And so he argues there masterfully that God credits to us righteousness when we trust in his veracity, his truthfulness to keep his promises and save us through Jesus Christ. Now, when James writes in James chapter 2, he's not contradicting Paul. He's looking at faith from another slice. He's looking at it from another perspective. In James chapter 2, what James is getting at is the person who claims to believe, but their lives show no proof by what they do. And so he contends, particularly in the context of how faith works itself out in good actions of, of love and compassion toward those who are in need, that faith without some action that demonstrates it really exists is no faith at all. And so as we come into James chapter 2, go back again and listen to what he says in verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that our faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Notice verse 22. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. What James is getting at is, in the scripture, a faith that saves is a faith that obeys. It works itself out in an active, obedient response to the commands and will of the Father. Paul would agree with that. It's really interesting when you look in uh, the book of Romans and see what a masterful job Paul has done in talking about right standing with God through Jesus, justification by grace through faith, how he bookends his letter. I want you to look over in, in Romans chapter 1, in verse 5, it's the first of two bookends. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. He says, through him, that is Christ, and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, now catch this, to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul would agree completely with what James is saying. Look over in Romans chapter 16, the very last chapter, the second of these two bookends. After he's talked so truthfully and masterfully and defended the grace of God as the standard by which we have right standing with God, 
This is what he says in verse 25 of Romans 16. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophet's writing by the commands of the eternal God, so that, catch this, all nations might believe and what? Obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, we need to get this understanding of faith working itself out in action. And God's premium placed upon the submission of our hearts to his will. A father wrote after visiting his son for a weekend who was in Marine boot camp. He wrote, I used to have problems getting my son to clean his room. He said I would insist that he do it now, and, and he would always agree to do so, but then he wouldn't follow through, at least not right away. He said, well, after high school, he joined the Marine Corps, which is where he is now. When he and I were on the plane together coming home for his leave after boot camp, the father says, he said to me, my life makes sense now, Dad. Everything you said and did when I was growing up now makes sense. I really, really understand. And then the father wrote that his son was quiet for a while, and then he added, oh, yeah, Dad, I learned finally what now means. <laughs> and that's an important principle that we need to get when it comes to responding to the sovereignty of God. When God says do it, he means now. Oh, that's so hard for people to get. Yes, in Scripture... To believe means to take God at his word, to put our trust into action. But then third, it means to obey God completely. I want you to hear me on this. In scripture, partial obedience is really no obedience at all. We have an Old Testament example, one of the prime ones. Look over in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and let me set the stage. King Saul who was brought to the throne with great humility, having been selected by God, the very first king of the nation of Israel. A man who with time grew proud and arrogant and rather defiant, was told by God to utterly destroy Amalek and all of his followers. They were such a detestable people because of their idolatry and because of their immorality and because of how they had treated his people Israel. God wanted them utterly destroyed. You, you wiped them all out, man women, and all of their livestock. Saul went off to war. God blessed him to win. But as he comes back, he brings some spoils from war. He brings back a few slaves that he spared from among the people. And he brings back, and I love the King James rendering of this passage. He brings back some sheep. And when Samuel the prophet comes in, I'll always love the, the, the rendering of the King James. He says, what meaneth the bleeding of these sheep in mine ears? <laughs> Don't you love that language? In other words, hey Saul, what's these sheep doing here? And Saul explains, well, you know, we won and I thought it would be good to take some of their people as slaves and I was going to take these sheep and offer them as a sacrifice to the Lord. I wonder if Saul just came up with that on the moment <laughs> about the time he realized Samuel, God's prophet, did not approve. So anyway, I want you to listen to what Samuel said. Verse 17, this is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 17. Although you were once small in your own eyes, 
Did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And I want you to notice Saul's response. He says, But I did obey the Lord. And sort of parenthetically, we could hear him say, Sorta. And listen to what Samuel says. Verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord he has rejected you as king let me say it again partial obedience toward God is really no obedience at all God says do it he says do it now and he says do it completely Too many of us, though, are like the man who was driving through a little wide spot in the road kind of town in a rural county late at night. Nobody was around. Place where they roll up the sidewalks at 6 o'clock. You've been through some of those places? And he came up to a four-way stop. And uh, there was nobody around, and he didn't see any harm, and so he just kind of slowed down. He did one of these rolling stop kind of things. Didn't come to a complete stop, slowed down, look around, no problem, went on through the intersection. Wasn't on the other side of the intersection until he saw some blue lights in his rearview mirror. County Sheriff's deputy pulled him over. Already frustrated, he jerks out his license and his registration and hands them to the officer. The officer's being very professional and polite and courteous, and he says, the reason I stopped you was because you didn't come to a complete stop back at that intersection, and that's a violation of our law. The man in a frustration said, I don't know what the big deal is. I slowed down. Well, at that, the officer got upset. He said, out of the car, sir. What? Out of the car, sir. Well, the man knew he needed to listen, so he got out of the car, and the officer pulled his nightstick and began to beat him on the back of the shoulders with his nightstick. And the driver said, hey, 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 what are you doing? The officer said, do you want me to stop or do you want me to slow down? (laughs) You know, when God says stop, he means stop. When God says go, he means go. When God says do, he means do, and he means do it now. Oh, the scripture places such a premium on obedience. Now, it needs to be said in the context of grace, and that's what we've been trying to do. God knew in advance that our best efforts at complying with his will were going to fall short of his glory. And so he offered Christ for us to be forgiven when we do. And yet scripture makes it very clear that that does not dismiss us from the responsibility of giving God our whole selves in submitting our wills to him completely from the heart and doing everything he tells us to do. And so as we wrap it up, I want to apply what it means when we receive the gospel by faith. Here's what it means. Salvation by grace through faith means that we come to God with a trusting heart. 
It's like the song we sing refrains, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. God has offered us a divine invitation from heaven itself to be in relationship to him again through Jesus Christ. And what we do in response is to say, yes, I trust you, and I take you at your word. To receive the gospel means that we come to God with a trusting heart. But second, it means that we live with God through a submissive heart. You know, Jesus modeled that for us, didn't he? Look at the life of Jesus. God in the flesh, obedient to his Father in heaven, Think about the number of references in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the reason He does what He does is to please the Father. If He hears what the Father says, He does what the Father says. If the Father tells Him to teach, He says, I only teach what my Father tells me to say. Let me ask you this question. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, it certainly wasn't for the reasons that we need to be baptized. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3, John's older cousin says to him the same thing. Why are you coming to be, to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. And you remember what Jesus said? You permit it to be so, so that it may, what? Fulfill all righteousness. Other translations get it more clear, even though it's a bit more loose. And it is, so that we may do all that the Father requires. Look at the wonderful example and model of obedience that Jesus sets for all of us. Rick referred to it as we were communing together in the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26. Jesus suffered in the flesh the way we do. Jesus knew what it was to struggle with submitting his will the way we do. He prayed earnestly about it. Lord, if it's your will, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But how did he respond? Nevertheless, not what? My will be done, but your will be done. Beautiful passage over in Hebrews chapter 5. I want you to see it's a very encouraging section of Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 5, the author talks about Jesus' attitude and behavior of obedience toward his Father. We pick up in verse 7. This is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. The author says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And catch this, he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal life for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Receiving the gospel means that we come to God with a trusting heart, and like Jesus, we live with God through a submissive heart. That's not always easy for us to do, is it? And you know, I'm discovering and being reminded that it really starts early in life, this discovery of our own sovereign will, and the challenge to submit it to somebody else's. Our grandson Gabriel turned 16 months old yesterday. They're down in Florida, safe and well, and Grandma and Grandpa are doing pretty well too. Thank you for praying for us. We appreciate that. 
But here recently, we've had a great time with Gabriel because uh, he, he does great things in being social with us and, and he, it'll give you a high five. Most of the time you say high five, he puts it right up. Sometimes he's not even paying attention to you directly, but he's working on something else and you say high five, he goes like that, high five and back to what he was doing. But he's also got the concept of no, he's starting to get that. And so something that he shouldn't touch, something that he shouldn't do, we'll say to him no. Now we try to use the word sparingly so it doesn't become white noise to him. But it's interesting what he does. He hears the word no and he steps back a little bit and he looks at it and he looks at you and he goes, no. We go, no. He looks at it again and he looks back and he goes, no. No. He walks away. Two minutes later, he'll come back and he'll go, no. And we go, no. But we'll put the two together, the high fives and the learning no. Just last week, I said to him, Gabriel, give me a high five. He grinned and he went, no. <laughs> Doesn't take too long to figure it out, does it? I want you to listen to what Paul said in Titus. When Paul wrote to Titus, he, he threw in a wrinkle about our response to grace that we often overlook. But it's crucial that we get it. In Titus chapter 2... I want you to pick up reading with me in verse 11. Paul says there, Titus 2 verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Well, that's a reference to the grace being embodied in Jesus, right? It, what? The grace of God teaches us to do what? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to, in effect, say yes, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unwickedness and to purify for himself all, all, all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own, catch this, eager to do what is good. There's a negative aspect to the response of grace that we're to make. And that means if we're struggling with submitting our wills to His, we need to continue the fight. We need to continue to say no to that which dishonors God and harms us. We need to continue to say yes to that which honors God and blesses us. And that leads me to a final response that receiving the gospel brings. Receiving the gospel means that we offer to God our lives from a joyful heart. It's just not mere compliance in a legalistic way. Much like the little girl who was told by her daddy who he was standing up long before the days of mandatory car seats. She was standing up to his right in the seat and he would say, sit down, honey. Well, she would sit down. Pretty soon she'd pop back up. He would say, sit down, honey. Well, she'd sit down and kind of grumble. And pretty soon she'd pop back up. And third, he, walked, he just reached over and kind of firmly but lovingly put her down. He said, sit down, honey. And she stayed down, but she said to him, Daddy, I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> no, it's not just doing it because we have no other choice. What Scripture says is we receive the gospel by faith by offering to God 
our lives from a joyful heart. We do it because we know that's what pleases the Father. And that's what we want to do, to make Him smile. I want you to listen to the words of David. As he was wrestling with his own guilt and sin, several months old when confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he's writing a song describing what's in his heart, I want us to pick up reading in Psalm 51, verse 16. What a beautiful passage and such rich teaching. Psalm 51, verse 16, David says to God, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God will take our compliance. But what God wants is our hearts. And when God has our hearts, we are willing to do our best to go anywhere He says to go, to do anything He says to do, to do it now, and to do it from the heart. That's how we respond to the gospel, and that's how we live out the gospel once we become Christians. May God bless us to do that. Just now, that may be what you want to do. You want to express your faith with obedience to the will of God to say to Him, I want your gift of salvation and I want your relationship you're offering to me. If you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, you're examining your life and you're turning away from that which would displease Him and toward that which would please Him. You're willing to go public with your faith and say, I believe Jesus is God's Son and I'm willing to serve Him as my Lord and you're ready to be baptized into Christ and live that kind of obedient life with Him, we're ready to help you. Whatever you need, let it be known while together we stand and sing this song.